hope you'll find your place in First um, Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue our series and our study through this incredible book of God's Word that teaches us, uh, has taught us many things about the church. Um, as we begin this morning, I want to start off by expressing to you uh, really a, a great experience that I had uh, the last couple months. Matter of fact, I was up here one night and I think I was painting this wall right here and I got a phone call from a pastor in Indianola, Mississippi, um, and uh, this young pastor was uh, basically asking me for a, a, a character reference on a former student that I was able to disciple, and he was uh, being considered to be the youth pastor at, at this pastor's church, and I got to answer a lot of questions um, about this young man that I was able to disciple, and many of you guys know who he is, Um, and it was just kind of a surreal moment for me to see the way that God was able to use my ministry to impact and influence young men under me to further them in gospel ministry, and I I give all the glory to God that that he did that. Um, I, I didn't... Uh, I, I only taught that young man what I was able to be, that I was taught myself from God's Word and just passed that information along. But it, it reminded me of, of the joy that we find in people that are under us, that we teach, that we guide, and when we see them excel and when we see them uh, it, just flourish in their relationship with Christ, we find joy in that. And this is kind of the theme of this letter to, that Paul writes to the Thessalonians because in the, in the first series that we talked about, he, he, he comments and, and encourages and is thankful for the church as a whole, the, the Thessalonica church, the, the way that these people have come together and established themselves as a church. And we talked about that as the blueprint for a healthy church. And then the second kind of phase or, or section that we studied was really the ministry of Paul and, and his ministry as he defended himself before the skeptics, before the scoffers. And we, we kind of looked at that and we said, you know, what does it look like for us as Christians in the world to lead? And now we come to really um, what I'd like to do is, is kind of sum up the rest of the book of 1 Thessalonians under the heading of qualities of faithful children. Because all of these people in the Thessalonian church are the, are the spiritual children of Paul. And so everything he says from this point forward, and, and really the whole book, he is speaking, like we talked about last week, as a father to his children. Now I don't know about you, but I am a father of five children. And there is nothing more important to me in the world than for them to know Jesus Christ to serve Him, and to be faithful to Him throughout the rest of their lives. I, I, I could step away from ministry. I could step away from any success or, or any fame. As long as my children are walking in the truth, that's what I want. And, and I think that that can be transposed or, or, or a parallel could be said about those under us in our spiritual lives. Those that we have guided and directed. Those that we have invested in. As our spiritual children, we desire for them to walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so as we focus on uh, the rest of this book and, and some of the challenges that Paul gives to his spiritual children, what I want us to think about is um, what does it look like for us as faithful children of Jesus Christ to one? What does it look like for us to impact other people? And what joy do we find when those young uh, people in the faith, those young brothers and sisters in Christ, what does it look like when they flourish and they're growing and they become faithful children? The problem is in our world and in our church is that we have to get, we have to, get to the, uh, the understanding of what does it look like to actually be faithful children. And one of the things in my ministry previously as a youth pastor that I, I don't know that I, uh, I ever stopped preaching on this topic, and that is what is authentic Christianity? Like what is genuine salvation? Because I felt like in a, in, a, in a group of 100 and something children and youth, I was, I was faced with this, this misunderstanding of the gospel. What is the gospel? What is it that you believe in because your grandmama and your grandpapa and all these people that taught you the Bible, did they really teach you the true gospel? Because there is clearly false gospels out there. And so for us to have faithful children in the faith and even faithful children in our own uh, lives, we have to understand and, and teach them the gospel, the real gospel, the true gospel. And so this morning... What I want us to focus on in, in this small section in 1 Thessalonians is this idea, faithful children bear fruit. And what Paul does in this really short section, 13 through 16, is he basically gives us a contrast between the fruit-bearing believers in Thessalonica and the faithless <coughs> unbelievers of the Jews. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians, and I'm just going to, again, read this one little section, 13 through 16. Notice with me the contrast here. He says, And we thank God constantly for this, that when you, the Thessalonians, when you received the word which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but what, is it, as it, what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers." For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now, from this point forward in verse 15, he then contrasts the believers' lives with the Jews. Listen to this. He says, Who, speaking of the Jews, killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them last, at last. So what we're going to see here this morning is a contrast between faithful children who believe and bear fruit and faithless children who do not believe and do not bear fruit. Now, what I want us to do this morning, if I can, and I hope that you will do this with me every week, is I want you to be honest with yourself. If I could ask for you to be very transparent this morning, examine your life, examine the lives of your children that, that have grown up in your home, examine the lives of the, of the spiritual children that maybe you spend time with, and be honest. If, if there's one thing that I saw in ministry over the years, is that there's not honesty with true spirituality and Christianity. I saw parents over and over again, 
think that their children who were not bearing fruit, who were not walking in the faith, because one day in, a, in, a, in an eon ago, they said a prayer and they walked an aisle and they had a great day at VBS, that all of a sudden that they were Christians, even though they never bore fruit of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you folks, there, there is nothing more passionate in my life than to be honest with myself about the salvation of my own children. I'm not going to sit in the mirror and lie to myself and say that Jesus Christ has saved my kids if I don't see fruit. That's the only evidence that we have as human beings on this earth. We cannot peer into their souls and see if they have truly confessed Christ. So the only thing that we have that Jesus has given us is that we can see fruit. Fruit from a healthy tree. It's an incredible analogy. It's an incredible truth. Turn with me this morning, as we, before we dive into 1 Thessalonians, turn with me to Matthew 13. I have heard this passage of Scripture preached so many different ways, and there's really only one way to preach it. Matthew chapter 13, this is the parable of the sower. Jesus that same day went out from the house and sat beside the sea. This is verse 1. And the, and the great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow and he sowed and some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. And other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. And other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, or some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, if we go over to verse 13, where Jesus explains this parable to his disciples. He says, Hear the, then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what the, was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he who has no root in himself but endures for a while, and when, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. Now folks, there's one way to understand this. <coughs> Every example of soils that Jesus gives except one is not true spirituality. It is not true salvation. Every circumstance where that seed, that gospel seed is scattered, every one produces a, an immediate reaction. Whether the, the Satan comes and snatches it away or, or there's an initial sprouting or there's an initial uh, uh, action there. But in the end, what Jesus is making us see is that the, the seeds, whether they sprout, are, are eventually withering, are eventually being scorched, are eventually being choked, and are, are eventually taken away. 
the only result that, that, that ends up in a spiritual uh, regeneration and a change in the life of people is the seed that falls on good soil. And how do we know that? How do we know that it's good soil? Because there was fruit. That's how we know. Verse 8. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. But it's fruitful. Jesus says the word in verse 23. He says, He indeed bears fruit. And so folks, the idea this morning is that faithful children bear fruit. And that's the idea that we need to come to grips with this morning as we look at this passage back in 1 Thessalonians. The Thessalonians, in all of Paul's observance and all of Paul's understanding, were believers. Matter of fact, if you go back to chapter 1, he says in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. We know. He, he and uh, Silvanus and Timothy are looking at the lives of the Thessalonians and here saying, we know that God has chosen you. How? Because our gospel came to you not only in the Word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. How do we know that the lives of the Thessalonians were really changed? Because the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God produced fruit in their lives. And that's exactly what he says in chapter 2, Verse 13, we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. So if you're following along with me, the first point of this little kind of a a broken up sentence is we have to focus on faithful children or fruitful children. We have to come to understand that the believers in in Thessalonica bore fruit because God had radically changed their life. And and, and notice here that in verse 13 we say this. Paul says, we thank God constantly for this. He's not saying, we praise you Thessalonians for believing. He says, we thank God constantly for this, that you receive the word of God. Who is he giving credit for the, the, the changing and the salvation of, of the Thessalonians? He says, we thank God for this. God is the one that changes your heart. God is the one that, that brings you from death into life. So we don't thank you for believing. We thank God for changing you. He could even have gone back to verse, uh, chap- verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Where he, he could have said, we thank God that he has chosen you. But he already said that. He said it in chapter 1. And the point is, is that God is the one that radically changes our lives. He is the one that produces the fruit that's in us. And how does He do it? He does it by the delivery of the Word of God. See, the the point is, is that the Word of God is what changes us by the Holy Spirit's power. And Paul says in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, we... uh, you received the Word of God, which you heard from us. So again, Paul is passing this message on. The Word of God is present. And so the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, change lives. Folks, I don't know about you, but if you've ever gotten in a conversation, I think our human nature in in sharing the gospel with people at times is that we want to convince them with our own words. And, And I think that that's a danger at times because we're trying to, in a sense, persuade them 
with our understanding and, and with our knowledge, and we oftentimes completely neglect the power that is contained within the Word of God. It is power unmatched in this world. Amen. It is unmatched. And so let the Word of God being read forth and, and brought forth from the text from your lips be what changes the hearts and the lives of people. It is what has the power in, 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 the, in the letter and in the word and in the sentence and in the, not the punctuation, <laughs> we don't want to go there, but, but the way that God brought the word together. It, it, it has power within itself. And so Paul says that we brought you the word and, the, and you received the word of God because it has power to change the lives. We, we know Romans 10, chapter 14 and 15. It says, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And, and how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So what we promote here, what Paul is promoting in the church is we're not promoting a big brother and big sister program. We're not trying to just be good mentors to young Christians in the faith where we can teach them how to mow the grass and, and, and teach them how to hold the door open for ladies. Those are all great things. I don't want to discount those. We should teach those. We should pass that, that chivalry and, and that respect and that honor on. But if we are putting those things above the Word of God and putting those things above passing on the truth of the Scripture to those underneath us, whether it's our biological children or our spiritual children, we're missing the boat. The Word of God is what we pass on to young people, to people in the faith that are younger than us. And when we see that word take root and, and, and grow the roots deep in their lives and, and their lives begin to change, we, as Paul did, find joy in their transformation. You know, Paul says that you receive the word of God not as the word of men. And can I caution us today that we have to understand that the gospel is a... It is a direct, definitive, sometimes offensive message. And that offense, we, we, we as human beings and in our flesh, we sometimes want to stray away from the offense. And the danger in that is that we change the gospel. Let me give you an example. There are, there are at least three gospel, uh, false gospels in the world that, that I have here that basically I think started out as, as a gospel and sin enters in and becomes a less gospel and a less gospel, which is a false gospel. Like, for instance, the prosperity gospel. You know, the prosperity gospel says that God wants to bless you and prosper you, that He wants to give you finances and He wants to give you good things and good health throughout your life as long as you act in obedience to His commands, as long as you give back to Him and, and are faithful to Him. That's the prosperity gospel. Why is that not true? Because God doesn't promise us good health. God doesn't promise us that we're going to live a long life. What God promises us is eternal life. What God promises us is peace, not necessarily on this earth, peace in eternity, through Jesus, peace with God. So yes, you may struggle, and you may fail, and you may falter, you may get fired from your job, you may face disease and sickness. You may lose children, but the truth is Jesus is coming and that all changes in Him. And so we, we don't 
cling to the things of this earth like the pharaohs did, where we're surrounded by our riches and our good things and all the accolades that we've accumulated and we, we bury ourselves surrounded by these things because they mean something. The prosperity gospel says God wants to bless you here. The true gospel says God wants to bless you in eternity. The second thing is a works gospel, which I would say every, every religion in the world outside of true Christianity preaches a works gospel. Good news, basically, you can merit your way to heaven. You can find and work hard and strive, and in the end, if you work hard enough, you will attain salvation through Jesus Christ. That is a works salvation. You are not justified, the Bible says, by works. You are justified by faith alone. And so what we do is we trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ to save us, not the completed work of Jesus Christ and whatever we do the rest of our lives. That's a works gospel. And the last gospel, which is really starting to, to gain momentum in this world, is the social gospel. The social gospel says basically God is healing people and healing the world through Him. Well, that's true. But if we're out doing acts of righteousness and acts of goodness, if I feed a homeless man, he will still one day and go to hell. If he doesn't know Christ, he will still die in his sins. And the social gospel says, go out there and love people and share the, the, the love of Jesus by your actions. And so look, I can go sleep in a, in a, in a small cubbyhole with homeless people, and if they don't know Jesus Christ, I have not helped them one bit. And so the truth is, is that the, the social gospel, there's, there's some truth to it. Yeah, go serve and, and go help society and impact them. But man, if we are not sharing the message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, we are preaching a false gospel. So let me give you my outline of just a basic gospel message. Number one, you have to talk about who God is. You have to talk about God's holiness you have to talk about the fact that He created you, He made you, and you are accountable to Him as a human being. And because of His holiness, you stand in complete opposition to Him. Why? Because number two, you have to talk about man. God is holy, God is righteous, God is perfect, and you as man are sinful. You don't just sin, you are sinful. You have a sin nature. And so you stand as an enemy against God. I heard this week on uh, this radio podcast I listened to called Wretched Radio, and I, and I heard um, this, what we would consider a Christian, basically say, well, you know, um, I'm, a, I'm a good person, and, and I believe in Jesus Christ, and I'm out here doing good works so that I can get to heaven. And, and I'm trusting in Jesus because He's going to save me, He's going to forgive me, and, and I do good things sometimes. And so that goodness is going to pay off for me in the end. And the, the speaker, um, the, the interviewer basically said, no, you are completely unable to please God in your own goodness. What you think is good is not really good in the eyes of God. And so what we have to explain to them is not only is God holy, and, but man is sinful. And there's a problem so in other words, the way he said it was, you have to explain the bad news before you can get to the good news. And don't walk away after the bad news, but don't leave the bad news out. Instead, the good news is, is that Jesus Christ comes, God in the flesh, living a perfect life, 
Living the righteous life that we cannot live. Being the obedient Son of God that we could not, obe- could not be, nor will we ever be. And He sacrifices His life on the cross for our sins. The God-man dying in our place on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, and then rising from the dead, having victory over sin and death. That is the message of Jesus Christ. But I would conclude that all gospel presentations must have a response. So if you're writing these things down, you have to talk about God, man, Christ, and response. And the response is, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to this? How are you going to respond to this message? It's written one way, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose. Now we're like, wait a minute, choose what are you talking about? You have to make a conscious decision to follow Christ. We are responsible to do that. Matter of fact, the, 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 um, Paul says to the Thessalonica, uh, people in Thessalonica, he says, you received the Word of God. You received it. You accepted it. Not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. Listen, the danger, I think, in, in evangelism and sharing the Gospel with people is that we're not there just to give them knowledge. They need that knowledge, but they can walk away with that knowledge and think they're saved. You have to own the Gospel. That's why we say that you must believe and trust in Jesus Christ. You can't just know historical facts about Jesus. You can't just understand who Jesus is and what He did. Putting your faith and trust in Him is that your life has changed. Your your desires are different. Your your understanding of of who you are and and who God is and and who Jesus is, that that is all radically transformed. And so Romans 10.17 says then at the end, I read this earlier, but verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So how do we respond to the Gospel? We have, to re- we have to take the Gospel to people and they have to receive it. In EE we used to say, it's like a gift being presented to you. You have to reach out and take it. Receive the gift. Don't just look at the gift and understand the gift, but receive it. Now, some of us will say that that receiving and that, that reception of the Word of God is by our own human effort. Some would say that faith does not ignite spiritual change in us until we receive that, and that reception of the the Gospel is by our own effort and our own human will. And I would say that people that say that don't read the Bible. They are misunderstanding the Bible. Because the, the mystery in all of this the mystery in all of the receiving of God's Word, whether you receive the God's Word as a child or you receive the God's Word last week, the whole point of all of that is not to give you glory, but to give God glory. So for God to get the glory for you receiving the Word of God, He has to give you the ability to receive it. Ephesians 2, 8-9, one of the most misunderstood verses of Scripture says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. We know grace is a gift of God, right? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
not of res- a result of works so that no one will boast. We know that verse, right? Here's the problem. We take that verse out of context when we say that salvation is a gift of God and that only by my faith, my human effort, do I receive that faith. Here's what I mean. Turn to Ephesians 2 with me. Because there's a danger, folks, in taking verses out of context and missing the boat on that verse. So yes, Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But chapter 2, verse 1, seven verses before that, says you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So what is he saying? You're dead. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body to mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Why did He do those things? Verse 7, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. Now we come to, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Your faith is the gift of God. So folks, let me just tell you, because you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins before Jesus, because you are dead in those trespasses, you cannot receive the Word of God without God giving you the ability to do so. And that is a mystery that we come to not in our own intellectual reasoning, but because the Word of God is trustworthy and true. And so we believe it, not because we, also, we always understand it, we believe it because God says it's true and He never lies. Because He's faithful and truthful and perfect and holy. And so, <clears throat> getting back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we basically see then, that Paul thanks God for the reception of the Word of God into the lives of the Thessalonians, but he's thanking God because God is the one that gave him the ability to receive that Word. And then verse, the end of verse 13, that Word is at work, he says, in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So not only are there faithful children do we want faithful or fruitful children, but we want those faithful and fruitful children to imitate Christ. That is what it means for the work of, or the Word of God to be at work in us. That's what he says. That word work means, it, 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 it kind of, the Greek word is energy. We get, we get the, the word energy from it. It's a, a working. It's an energy. It's a, it's a, a source of, of transformation in our lives a power source within us that is changing us. And so that work, that change in us, is we are becoming, going from old to becoming new in our lives. That's, that's the way the, the, the Word of God kind of teaches us. We are being transformed. We have been given a new life in Christ. Have you ever heard the word 
Norma McCorvey. Anybody know that name? Norma McCorvey. You, most of you may not know that name. You know her by another name. Her name is Jane Roe of the infamous Roe versus Wade case. And what's amazing about this woman's story is that this woman was in a, a difficult place in her life and she began to feel the pressure of an unplanned pregnancy with her kind of rocky marriage that she was in. And so she became one of the most pro-abortion advocates in our history to the point that when they took it to the, the courts, her name was, was on the docket, Roe versus Wade. Now, what we don't always hear about Roe versus Wade is that Jane Roe or Norma McCorvey actually gave her life to Christ. And now, Norma McCorvey is an advocate for pro-life. No longer does she advocate abortion. <clears throat> she does videos and says that she made a mistake, that it was the greatest mistake of her life. And now, she is advocating for the rescue of children from abortion. What changed her? Well, did she wake up one day and go, you know, I'm just going to be different today. I don't really have the supporters that I need on this pro-abortion circuit, so I want, to, I want to have more popularity in the pro-life circuit. No, Jesus Christ was at work in her. He saved her and He changed her. How do we know that? Because of the fruit in her life. Amen. The fruit is, at dis is on display within her own life. And so Paul says, look, he calls them believers. The Word of God is at work in you believers, those who believe. That's what it says literally. You believe in Jesus Christ, and you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now here's what's interesting. Paul brings up the churches in Judea. Now, that translates to us the churches in Jerusalem and, and maybe those that kind of spread out from Jerusalem. And what's interesting is the people in Thessalonica were separated from Jerusalem by a large body of water. You had to go up the coast and all the way back down to even get to Thessalonica from Jerusalem. They would have probably never traveled to the churches in Judea. So Paul is not assuming that these people know the churches in Judea. They don't know the, the, the people specifically in the churches in Jerusalem. What they know is how God worked and moved in their lives and specifically how He changed them and molded them and shaped them. In essence, what they knew was how God had transformed the early church. And, and specifically, how He transformed them to such a point that they were able to suffer well. And so that's my third point in my first little section is that faithful or fruitful children imitate Christ in their sufferings. That's, that's one of the, 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 the fruits that Paul draws out. He says, look, you are imitating Christ. You are imitating your Lord. You are imitating your Savior. And specifically, you are doing that as the church when you suffer like other churches have suffered before you. And of course, the church in Jerusalem was known to have suffered greatly. <clears throat> Hold your place here and, and turn to Acts 8. Acts 8 is just a great synopsis of the first and early accounts of the early church. This is kind of a, I guess you could say, a, a chapter break for the, uh, the writer Luke as he is describing the early church. 
And what you have from Acts 1 to 7 is the, the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon these believers, them preaching boldly, and them from then on facing persecution after first persecution only in the area of Jerusalem and Judea. They, they, the, it really doesn't branch out until chapter 8. So everything from 7 and beyond or before is all the persecution and the, the, the amazing things, the, the work of God in the city of Jerusalem as the church begins to start and grow. And this was not a little church, folks. This was thousands of people. Some believe up to five or six or 7,000 at this point. And of course, we know that, that Peter and John are thrown into prison. We see in verse chapter 7 here, uh, Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr who is stoned, which we could really say that Jesus is the first Christian martyr. But, um, and then in verse 8, look at verse 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved his execution, meaning Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made lament over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So all of a sudden now, the, the church in Jerusalem begins to scatter. And as they're scattering, they're going from place to place, sharing the gospel, starting new churches, and those new churches are winning souls, and they're suffering, and so they scatter more, and so this theme of suffering becomes the part of the church. Now folks, why in the world would that be any different today? Why in the world would we assume that as a church in America that we would not suffer? Have we completely forgot to understand all of Christian history to think that, okay, so for the last, you know, thousands of, year, thousands of years, last 2,000 years, as the church began to sprout and grow from Christ and His ministry, they suffered and they suffered and they suffered, but now we're in America and we don't suffer as a church. That, that's, that's ridiculous. That's not understanding Christian history. We are going to suffer as Christians in this world. We are going to have our rights taken away. We are going to face persecution. We are going to face difficulty. As I said last week, my belief, and I'm not a prophet, I'm not trying to you know, give a new word, I'm just saying churches are going to get smaller. They're going to probably get more genuine and more true because people that are not committed to the true work of the ministry, they're not committed to suffer for the sake of Christ, they don't understand what it means to count it worthy to suffer for His name, they're going to get out the door. I'm not suffering for Jesus. He was supposed to suffer for me. That's what they'll say. Folks, the truth is, is that we are promised to face suffering and difficulty. We are promised. And what's interesting is that Paul over and over again not only promises our suffering, but says that it is a sign of our salvation. It is, a, it is an evidence, it's a fruit that's, ex, that's exposed to the world that we are believers because we suffer well in Christ. Philippians chapter 1, write this, this verse down. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. If you want to turn there, you can. He tells the Philippians, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are a standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
So he's saying, I want you to be unified as a church. Verse 28 of chapter 1 in Philippians. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Wow, that's amazing. We are promised to suffer. And that suffering is an evidence that we believe and trust in Jesus Christ because we suffer well. Why? Because those that suffer, and they suffer in a, in a negative way, they fall away from the faith, that is a fruit, people, that they do not believe in Christ. And so Paul says, back in 1 Thessalonians, to the Thessalonian church, he says, you suffer, you imitated the churches of God in Christ Jesus like the ones in Judea. Why? Because you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And so now we contrast this very quickly from those who know Christ, who are producing fruit in their lives, who, who are suffering well as they imitate Christ in their daily lives, to faithless people who reject Christ. Who reject Christ. If you remember in Acts chapter 17, we saw that as Paul entered Thessalonica and he began to proclaim the gospel, people were saved, right? But then, in verse 5 of Acts chapter 17, the first phrase is, but the Jews were jealous. And they immediately began to incite a revolt and a mob to, to, uh, to attack the Christians there in the church, men like Jason, who were, uh, were ministering and, and caring for Paul. And all of a sudden, the Jews became the ones that were angry at the gospel. They were angry at the work that was being done by Paul and his associates. They were instigating threats and, and causing revolts in the city. Why? Because the Jews were faithless people. Not all the Jews... <coughs> But the Jews in this story were. They were faithful people who reject Jesus Christ. Not only were the Jews in Thessalonica carrying out schemes in their own lives of, of evil, but they were actually working, and in, in, in I, I would say this in a very southern way, they were working in cahoots with Satan. If we can say the word cahoots. They were partners in the work of Satan. Why? Because Satan's role in this world before his final destruction is to obstruct the gospel work. That's what he wants to do. He can't destroy the gospel. He can't destroy Jesus. But he will try to obstruct the work of the ministry. And so what is he doing? He, in essence, is... Um, the Jews are being used by Satan to try to obstruct the work of the gospel, but it didn't work. Paul continued the ministry. The, the power of God overcame this, this satanic work. And what happens? The church continues to grow and is faithful. And so what we see is this contrast where the Jews are the faithless people who don't believe in God. They are the ones who try to oppose the gospel going forth. And Jesus makes this amazing statement in Matthew chapter 12. 
He says, look, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so basically what we see as the Jews began to reject the gospel, they reject Jesus. And we, in our lives, we see that as well, right? We see people, even maybe our own children, rejecting the gospel. And when they reject the gospel, folks, when their lives do not, uh, are, are not driven toward Christ and toward the gospel, they are rejecting the gospel. That means they are faithless people. They are faithless. They are ashamed of the gospel. They are not, as Romans 1.16 says, unashamed of the gospel. And not only are they ashamed of the gospel and rejecting Christ, as the Bible says here in 1 Thessalonians, they are killing both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Well, we know the Jews were responsible to, um, for instigating the Romans and putting Jesus on the cross. But it also says that they were opposing the prophets, those Old Testament prophets before them who were preaching the kingdom of God and they were, they were um, mistreating those prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. But also it says they drove us out, meaning the apostles. So the Jews here are representative of people who reject Christ, who oppose the work of God. But I want you to notice in verse 15 this phrase. It says, They drove us out, they displease God, meaning they are not pleasing God by their actions, and they oppose all men. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? So the Jews, representing people without faith in Christ, oppose all mankind. What does that mean? What, does it, what is he talking about that the Jews oppose all mankind? Well, think of it this way. If we are sent into the world to proclaim the gospel, and that gospel message is the message of eternal life, and the Jews represent a people who reject Christ and are opposing that message going forth, then what are, we, what are they basically doing? They are trying to obstruct people coming to have eternal life. So if you're trying to obstruct other people from having eternal life, you hate them. You may not know that you hate them, but if you are obstructing their understanding and their reception of the gospel, you hate them. And so, in essence, what we're saying is before Christ, we are so self-directed and selfish in our own lives that we don't even realize it, but we are at work against the gospel as enemies of God, and we, in essence, hate mankind. Because we are rejecting Christ we are, we are obstructing the gospel message and we are, in essence, standing in the way of people coming to know Christ. And so it's an amazing condemnation upon people. See, what I hear in the, in the world today is people that don't follow after Christ, maybe they made a decision early on in their life, well, they're just, they've just fallen away. They, they're, just, they're not walking with the Lord. Here's my problem with that. If the power of the Spirit of God dwells within us, how are they consistently not walking with Christ? How is that possible? Are we saying that the power of the Holy Spirit is diminished within us? I don't think so, folks. I think that we have blurred the lines between believer and unbeliever to such a point because rationally it makes sense to us. It makes us feel better when we can say, well, they just kind of fallen away. They're not really walking with the Lord. 
Instead of being completely honest and saying, look, the Spirit of God should be in them, they should be imitating Christ, they should be suffering well, or they don't believe in Jesus, period. They are rejecting Christ. They are obstructing the Gospel. And so ultimately we can say then that faith in Christ leads to a work in us that impacts humanity for good. Rejection of Christ leads to a hate in us that hates humanity for evil purposes. And that ultimately, that rejection of Christ, Paul says, leads to their condemnation. Verse 16, By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. The Gospel is very clear that condemnation will come to those who reject Christ. It will come. We cannot escape the judgment of God. He is holy and just in all of His attributes, and so He must punish sin. And because He must punish sin, the only escape from a Holy, just God is a substitute for that sin. And that substitute is Jesus Christ. As I told you a couple weeks ago to memorize Romans 8.1, which says there is therefore no condemnation uh, to those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. When we reject Christ Jesus, we will face the eternal, eternal wrath and punishment and separation from God. Jesus is our escape from that punishment. Jesus is the door to Noah's ark which provides escape from the treacherous waters of God's judgment. Jesus is the ram in the bush that God provides so that we will not face the knife of His punishment for sin but instead, which requires a sacrifice. Jesus is the deliverer from our bondage of sin in Egypt which shackles us not for 400 years but for eternity if we are without escape. Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is our Savior. And so we must trust and put our faith in Him. Amen. And so as we conclude... This morning, I want to ask you a question that I ask my students many times, especially when I preach that Matthew 13 passage, is that who are you in the parable of the sower? Who are your children in the parable of the sower? Who are your spiritual children? Are you the one that is choked by the world or, or uh, the, the affairs of the world? Where you maybe sprouted a little bit of, of Jesus in you for a while, but then that fades away? Or did the the evil one come and snatch it out instantly? Or did the the sufferings and the persecutions choke out your faith so that it's not real? Or are you bearing fruit because the gospel fell on good soil? That's the question that not only we should ask ourselves, but for those in our families, for those in our ministries, do we see faithful children imitating Christ in their sufferings that bear fruit?